was she responsible with her inheritance that she was passing on? And my thoughts go to Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read verses 19 to 34. This is the story about Esau selling his birthright. I'll begin reading in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padaram, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quieter man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of your some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So I read that whole passage just to talk about that last word in there, birthright. I'm going to take a brief look at what birthright meant in Esau's time here in the Old Testament. First of all, it belonged to the oldest son and the firstborn son. Um, It wasn't handed on to, if a girl was older, it wasn't handed on to the girl. Um, And within this birthright were included at least two important things, and that first one was family position. They would become the leaders of the family, essentially the patriarch, and would carry judicial authority um, within the family. Um, And then the second thing was the inheritance. The oldest son, or the one that received the birthright, usually would receive double the portion of any of the other sons. So it was an honorable title that held a lot of value um, so by Esau selling his birthright here, he sold, he sold double the portion. He sold leadership within the family. He sold it for instant gratification. Basically, he sold it for a bowl of soup to take away his hunger pains. Seems pretty simple. 
Another odd birthright story within the Old Testament is the one where Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I'm not going to take the time to read that, but that's in, verse, uh, that's in chapter 48 of Genesis. It's a very interesting story. If you want to jog your memory on that, take time to read that later. But I'll give you a brief summary of what, was, um, d- what happened there. So Jacob was about to die, and so Joseph took his sons, Ephraim and Ephraim and Manasseh to visit him. And when they were there, um, actually, sorry, I, I'm going to read a verse or two. So, that. He, he said, uh, sorry, and um, when they were there, Jacob said this in verse 3 He said, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply and I will make you of a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring for you. I'm sorry, give to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Jacob claimed Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. He, asked, he then asked to bless them, and so Jacob sat them on his knees in front of Jacob, um, and he did this strategically so that when Jacob would set, put his arms out to bless them, his right hand would be on Manasseh and his left on Ephraim. Um, Jacob was blind at this, at this point and couldn't see very well, but when Jacob went to bless them, he crossed his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim. And he proclaimed the younger Ephraim to be a bigger, greater nation um, than Manasseh, which in turn obviously made him the more dominant male of the family. And he would have a bigger um, um, offspring, and they would be, have higher priority in the land, and so on and so forth. It's interesting, then he follows it up in chapter 49, where Jacob didn't even bother giving the inheritance blessings to his other sons. In fact, all of, verse, uh, all of chapter 9, he says exactly why each of them did not deserve the birthright or the inheritance that he was planning to give to them. And this blessing, oddly enough, ended three generations of sibling rivalries and unusual inheritance blessings. These were not the norm. Um, So if you remember, Isaac and Ishmael had a conflict, then it was Jacob and Esau, and now it was between Manasseh and Ephraim. So you might think, I mean, neat, cool summary of Old Testament stories, but we don't do our inheritance this way anymore, and that happened in the Old Testament, so what's the point of these? And how does this possibly relate to us? Good news is it does, and I'm going to try to explain this a little bit better, and I'm going to start with God and who he is as a father. Now offhand, I'd like to hear from you guys, what, what do you see as a characteristic of God that you feel like he shows to you? Um, don't, I'm not looking for necessarily what the Bible says, but I'm curious of your experience, what you feel God is to you as a father. Real quick, anyone offhand? Patient, loving. Mm-hmm. 
And you feel like you experienced that? You do? Protective. Protective. Mm-hmm. Provider. Provider. Mm-hmm. An inward peace? Mm-hmm. Wisdom. Wisdom. Often we tend to see the God of the Old Testament a little different from the God of the New Testament. Not everyone does this, but it's a common mistake that we make whereas we see God in the Old Testament as a harsh and judgmental God versus a forgiving and loving God in the New Testament. Turn to Luke 15. This parable here in Luke 15 can give us some understanding of how God was throughout the whole scriptures. Um, And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, was my, this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a pretty common story. 
here, and we're very familiar with it, where the son asks for his inheritance, and then he leaves town and blows his money on a wild lifestyle, and then when he finally hits rock bottom, he turns to the only security he knew, home, where he hoped to convince his father to give him a job as a hired hand. Instead, his father runs and meets him, and throws his arms around him, welcomes him home, and insists on throwing a big party for him. So who is the father portrayed in this parable? And this is a, yes, and it is an example of, of how our Heavenly Father does the same to us. In its original context, the concept of a loving father was not new or blasphemous to his listeners here. Um, in the Middle East culture, the son leaving was what was more unthinkable than God throwing, uh, or God being so compassionate and longing to his son. Right, first, when I read this, par- I read this parable, it thinks of, I think of it from that angle. I thought maybe that's what Jesus is trying to bring across. But this has been a steady foundation throughout the whole Bible of Jesus being a longing, loving father. A man by the name of Ken Bailey once asked hundreds of Arabs the question to verify this. Um, and he, he asked the question, have you ever known a son to come to his father and demand his inheritance. And the replies were always the same. It would be an unspeakable outrage and an insult to the father and his family if this happened. And now to us, it might seem like a foolish move and a little youthful, but in a way, it's not that strange because we, it, we, um, we are accustomed to the idea of individuals um, making choices and finding their way through life and maybe learning from them whether the choices be right or wrong. But in this Middle Eastern setting, taking the inheritance could render grave consequences to the family for the rest of their life. And they could lose everything because of it. And for this to happen because one son was taking his own interests in mind to enjoy life on his own terms was a bold show of rejection to his father and family. So at the foundation of Christianity needs to be the understanding that God is a longing and loving Father. A few months ago, I was watching uh, the YouTube video from uh, the church I used to attend in Center, and the one devotional made a big impact on me in trying to understand how God is. And he, um, and so I'll share, I get this idea from him, so I'll share with you um, the way I've been seeing it. So I have two children, and um, and I started I started asking them. <laughs> I do have three children. I, I've been only asking this to my two children so far. They're the only ones that reply. That's why I said that. Sorry. And when I've been putting them to bed, I've been asking them. I've been telling them that I love them, and that I've been asking them why why does why does why do I love them, and. It's, I, I, you can, I'll ask them, is it because, Zoe, is, are you smart? Or Cohen, are you funny? And it, that's not why I love them. I don't love them because they're smart or they're funny. And so we have this little thing that we'll go through, and I'll ask them why I love them. 
And I want them to understand that it's not what they do that is going to um, make, isn't going to make them love me, uh, isn't going to make me love them. I love them because they are my children, and God gave them to me. In fact, the last little while, every time I say um, I love them, she always wants to know why I love them. And that's exactly the way I want her to see God. Now, sadly, I'm a human father, and I might make mistakes, and I hope I don't confuse them. But I would think each one of us, if we understand that we are God, we are loved by God, not because of what we do or whether it's good or bad, but because we are his child. God cares so very deeply about us. The wrong view of God, the Father, will always give us a skewed understanding of sin as well. And we tend to view sin as the breaking of rules, like getting a parking ticket or a speeding ticket in the heavenly court system. And we think Jesus' sacrifice will cover the offense and forgive us of the offense. In this viewpoint, God is a callous, uncaring judge who is concerned about the laws being followed. However, sin, like portrayed in the parable of the prodigal son, is a personal offense against a loving God. Not a rule that we broke, but a personal rejection of our Heavenly Father who cares deeply about us. Think, think on if something your child does. How does that make you feel? Um, and so you can, you can sort of relate to that and maybe get a little bit of an understanding. But we must understand in, a, in its own way that when we sin against God, we hurt God. And going against him makes him sad. Now, let's look at Hosea 11. Uh, there's this... Let's see. I'm going to read Hosea 11, verses 1 through 9. This is where God looks back at how precious his child was and how sad he is that the child has strayed even when he tenderly cared for the child. Listen to the tone of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Let me see. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning, off- and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall raise against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise, raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall, go be at, they shall go after the Lord. He, sh- he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will, shall come trembling from the west. 
They shall come trembling like birds from the Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. A few generations later, Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote of the same type of feeling God feels towards his people. Jeremiah 3, 19. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father, and I would not turn from following, and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights in her is heard the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless son. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountain, truly in the Lord our God, is the salvation of Israel. God cares very deeply for us. We don't have to ask him to come to us. Because he is always right there beside us. The best part is we are always his child, like I mentioned earlier. And we can't undo that. So if we go against him, he is still passionate and longing and waiting for us to return. And he will be standing right there when you're wet, ready to return. So I'd like to bring together these, the Old Testament birthright and what I've been talking about, the passion, passionate father, and bring it together into understanding of what our inheritance is. God, want, God loves us so much, he, and he wants to bless us and give us the best inheritance one could ever wish for. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Listen to what it has to say about inheritance. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 and read through 23. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of, un, un, of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Psalm 16.5 says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion. Souls, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Our inheritance is God himself, Christ in us. When Jesus was born, he was God's firstborn son, the only begotten Son of God, and his name was called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Our inheritance is not only a future inheritance, but we can possess it now. And the inheritance we possess is unfading, undefiled, and undying. And when we take on the fullness of Christ and walk with him, we can begin to enjoy the first fruits of his inheritance today. So why should we get caught up in the sins of the world? Glamorous-looking false prophets, political sides and their strong followings, or find our identity in our favorite sports teams? Or should we let fear and future uncertainties worry us? If we, get head, if we get caught headlong in the things that aren't of the kingdom of heaven, are we not trading our inheritance for a bowl of soup? You'll have to think for yourself what might be slowly or even quickly um, undermining or overtaking your interests or thoughts. Because when we follow these earthly, frivolous things, think back on what God is as a father and who he can be for you. Are we not rejecting God like the Israelites did or like the Ephraimites did as was written in Hosea? If we can grasp, if we can read those and we can, when we read those passages we can grasp and get a glimpse of the heart of God because God weeps with sadness when we sin or take on these earthly sins um, or these, yeah, these earthly sins or the things of the earthly nations. And his heart aches for us to be like a little child that depends solely on his father. Never throw away what is important, godly or honorable, for something that is temporary. God has given us an incredible, powerful, life-altering inheritance. So what will you do with it? In conclusion, I'd like to say we are God's children, and he longs for us with an unending love. And as his children, we are joint heirs with Christ, and we have been given the mind of Christ to have within us. So of all that I've said today, you might not remember much, but I, I want you to remember and ask yourself repeatedly, Am I trading Christ in for a bowl of soup?